Please turn in your Bible to Daniel chapter 9. Great. Thank you. Uh, for the So while I'm distributing this here, Daniel chapter 9. So we've reached a place in the book of Daniel where many regard this to be one of the most important prophecies in the Old Testament, if not perhaps the most important, at least from a significance of uh, the nation of Israel, the church. And, and what concerns us in terms of what's next on the prophetic calendar. So we're going to read beginning in verse 20 this morning. Remember last week we were uh, dealing with Daniel's prayer in the first 19 verses as he's been receiving these visions from the Lord. These visions have touched him, they've changed him, they've driven him to prayer. And as he's gone to prayer before the Lord, as we looked at last week, God just really spoke to him, moved in his heart, and he was crying out to God for clarity, for, for understanding, for, for purpose. And today, as we continue in that same passage, we are seeing where the Lord just began to really speak to him. So in verse 20, we'll have this um, up on the screen here, if you'd like to follow along uh, down through verse 27. Daniel continues and writes, Now while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplications before the Lord my God, for the holy mountain of my God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved, therefore consider the matter and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times, And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war. Desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, 
But in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Lord, please add your understanding to the reading of your word. Please speak to our hearts. Please quicken our spirits that we might draw near to you and be open to all that you have to say to us. And Lord, give us hearts that are ready and willing to listen, to receive, to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. So Daniel had been praying and you know, as you go back and you read through that prayer, uh, he said there in verse 19, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. You know, normally when we pray, God often, most probably most, most usually, does not give an immediate answer. Often we have to wait and pray and seek the Lord and he will bring an answer over time. Maybe he'll speak to our heart or maybe he'll, as we're reading in our Bibles, he'll speak to us and give us the answers we're looking for. But in this very unusual situation, we find that God answered the prayer right away, like immediately. And in verse 20, he says, now while I was speaking and praying, he was still in that process and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel. Notice the repentance and the humility that Daniel had in approaching the Lord and how he, he just wanted to draw near to God. And if that's something that you desire in your own life, then you have to go into his presence. You have to find a time and a place and a space to, to get alone with him and to, to draw near. If you want to hear things from God like Daniel heard from God, you must do this. You see, it's not a, a legalistic thing. It's not a you know, requirement of the law. But just like anything else, as I'm discovering, if you want to be healthy, you have to eat healthy. You have to make changes. If you don't make those changes, then, you know, in my case, my lifespan is going to be severely shortened and I will have severe medical problems going forward if I don't change. And if you want to change, if you want your relationship with God to be something better than what it is now, you have to change. You have to make choices. You have to make decisions. You know, sometimes we pray and say, God, would you just take this desire from me? God may do that, but more often than not, if you go and look at the Old Testament with the people worshiping their idolatry and, uh, you know, just refusing to obey God, you see, there's a choice that has to be made. And God wanted his people to lay down their idols, It wasn't that God was going to come in and take them from them like a a kid who's playing with their toy and is like, okay, time's up, and takes the toy. You see, we have to lay it down. We have to let it go. And that's the way repentance works. It's saying, yes, I agree with you, Lord. Yes, I want to do what you want me to do. I want to be what you want me to be. I want to say what you want me to say. I want to live like you want me to live. And in order to do that, There is a sacrifice. Remember, Jesus said, you must take up your cross and follow him. And then uh, you must take up your cross daily, he said. And then Paul later said, I die daily. 
You see, that's a process for us. It's something we must do. It's a choice we must make. And so in order for us to move on, as the book of Hebrews says, from the sin that so easily binds and ensnares and entangles us, we have to lay it down. We have to let it go. If we want to draw near. And so we have to make changes. We have to make reprioritizations in our life. We have to go to bed earlier or get up earlier, or, or say, I'm no longer going to get up. I'm just making this up now. If I'm speaking to you, please understand, this is not me messing with your life. If the first thing you do in the morning is get up and flip the news on, maybe the first thing you need to do in the morning is to keep the TV off and open this book. Nothing's more important than this book and your relationship with God. And there's only one way to get there, and that's to do it, to sit down with him. And open your Bible and read. Now, whether it's in the morning or the evening, God's not legalistic about when that is. But when you read in the Bible, when you read in the Psalms especially, it's like Psalm 5, O Lord, in the morning, early will I seek you. And why is that? Because the beginning of your day, whenever that is, is when your mind is the clearest and when you're just kind of like, you know, before the world rushes in and your task list pops up in front of you and all of that, you just kind of, before you do all that, just God... Here's my task list. I put it before you. Lord, here's this care, this concern. I put it all before you. Uh, What I do is I keep a piece of paper, write all that garbage down because it comes flooding into your mind so that when I write it down, I'm like, okay, it's over here. Now I can focus on this. Now I can focus on you. Daniel, as often was his case, went into his prayer closet. He went into his room or wherever he was. We know earlier he, pl- he prayed three times a day and he opened his windows toward Jerusalem and as any good Jew would do and then just pray toward the Lord, pray toward the temple because that's for them where the presence of God was. I know often for me personally, uh, when I have the opportunity, I love to go to the beach or the mountains, just get outside Put your phone on silent, turn it off, leave it in the house, whatever. And just find that place that works for you. I can't go to the beach every day. I would like to. But while you're there, like Daniel, he was there speaking, praying, confessing, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God. He was concerned about restoring Jerusalem about restoring the temple. Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, he reached me about the time of the evening offering. The evening offering would be late afternoon, starting around three, going all the way through three to six in that time frame. And here's the thing that we need to remember about Daniel. Remember Daniel? Daniel's an old man now. He's in his mid to late 80s, most likely. When he was taken captive, he was probably in the neighborhood of 15 years old. So he's been there for a very long time, nearing 70 years. And someone said this, and it really spoke to me. He was living in Babylon, but he was still measuring time by Jewish religious practices. His body was in Babylon, but his mind and his heart were in Jerusalem. And the reason that spoke to me is we see in the book of Philippians, we see in the book of Hebrews where it talks about, you know, Abraham and others of faith who they they had fixed their eyes on Jesus. They were looking to a far country, to a heavenly country. And so Daniel was living in Babylon, you know, the center of world power at that time. 
You know, it might be more akin to a New York City or something like that in our day, or even Washington. But while he was there in Babylon, he was looking to God. He was looking to Jerusalem and what God wanted to do in his prophetic timetable. And so God, in his graciousness and his mercy, answers Daniel's prayer immediately. And in response to his prayers of confession for sin, for his people, for himself, crying out to God, saying, God, would you help us? Would you be merciful to us? Just, you know, crying out to God literally. In verse 22, and he, Gabriel the angel, informed him, he informed me, and he talked with me, and he said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. So the angel has been sent, he's been dispatched by God to grant Daniel's request for insight and understanding. This is exciting. It's always exciting when God says, I am going to give you understanding. I'm going to help you make sense of this. So verse 23, at the beginning of your supplications, the command went out and I have come to tell you. So Daniel, while you started praying, God said to me, this is, you know, him speaking, go, go now, go give him this message, go speak to him, go open his eyes. So Daniel's praying and the answer is on the way in the form of angel, of the angel Gabriel. And he says, I've come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Man, how many of us need to hear that today? You know, that wasn't a word just for Daniel, that's a word for us. You are greatly beloved. You see, the Lord cares about you. He cares about me. He doesn't want us to languish and flip-flop and flounder and walk in darkness. I would say to you, if we are walking in darkness, it's by our own hand. It's not because God is keeping us in the dark. He says, therefore, because you're greatly beloved and because I'm going to help you understand, therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. Daniel illustrated the principle that when we seek God diligently, we often receive even more than we ask for. Isn't there a beautiful verse in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20? For he will give you exceedingly abundantly beyond all that you can ask or think, if you're willing to seek his face. So God in his graciousness now answers him, but he gives him an answer that he probably doesn't expect in the form of this prophecy, this vision. So starting in verse 24, and and by the way, every time we come to Palm Sunday, we usually come back and cover this. So you get a a double dose here in about six or eight weeks. We'll do this again to some extent, maybe not exactly the same. But today we're coming at it purely from the point of view of Daniel. We're not coming at it from the point of view of the Old Testament looking, the New Testament looking back, although we will do some of that. So he says here, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Now in these previous visions that God was giving Daniel so far in chapter seven and chapter eight, you know, God was telling him about the future not just the future in his time, the near-end future, which God did tell him about. And he told him about, you know, the next uh, kingdoms that would come up, you know, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire, and how they would come 
in time and impact that world. But he also then dropped hints, breadcrumbs to the future, to the way future, to the end of time, to what we know as the end of the time of the tribulation, to the second coming of Christ, to when Christ would come and make everything right on the earth. So God's already been speaking that to him. And now as he's heard these visions over the last two or three years, he now comes to this place where God is speaking to him, but he's zoning in now on that thing way at the end when, when God is going to come and do something wonderful and miraculous. Now remember, Daniel had been confessing his sins and the sins of his people. He had been very focused on what they had done as the Jewish people to offend their God and to cause them to be exiled for those 70 years. So God says to him, these 70 weeks, that God's going to give a specific period of time for your people, the Jewish people, and for your holy city, Jerusalem, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity. What is all of this? And how is God going to do it? Well, first of all, just dealing with the idea of this 70 weeks, what we need to understand is that this is very Jewish. You know, to give you a a way to compare it, you know, in our time and space, we think in terms of decades, don't we? Ten-year periods, you know, from you know, 2020 to 2030 and that kind of thing. And our lives are kind of built around uh, tens. In the Jewish calendar and in the Jewish way of thinking, their minds were de- developed around the number seven or heptads. You say, why? Because in the book of Genesis... In six days, God created the earth, and on the seventh day, he rested, and on the eighth day, you repeat that cycle. So there were seven days in a week, and there were seven uh, years, you know, that, that God, at the end of those seven years, wanted there to be a year for the land to rest. And then at the end of the seven times seven years, 49 years, every 50th year was to be a year of jubilee. We talked a little bit about that last week, but the point is their life was... Uh, around the idea of sevens or heptads. So God, rather than speaking in decades, is speaking in sevens. So 70 weeks, uh, when you read this and you go read all the commentators and all they have to say about it, most of them end up in the place where they say these weeks are periods of years. Not seven seven weeks, but seven years. So we'll, we'll get into this and develop it a little more. So Daniel's thinking in terms of this 77s of years, that God's speaking about a 490-year period somewhere out in history. And he says, your people, and he means the Jewish people. When he says the city, your holy city, he's talking about Jerusalem. And by the way, there's only one holy city to the Jew and to the Christian. And it's Jerusalem. This vision does include the church, but it's specifically talking about the Jewish people, the Jewish nation. So he begins by giving sort of three negatives and then three positives. The negatives that he's dealing with are to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity. And the positives are to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy or the most holy place. Now notice these things 
can only be done by God. You and I can't do this. We can't do something or say something to make these things come about. Only God can make these things happen. So when it says to finish the transgression, and notice the definite article, not just to finish transgression, to finish the transgression. What's he talking about? Well, we believe he's referring back to what we would call original sin. To end the garden with Adam and Eve. Remember God had said to Adam and to Eve, of all the fruit of the the garden you may eat except that tree right there, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so when Satan tempted Eve and she took the bait, so to speak, and then she went and she offered it to her husband. Uh, We are told in the scriptures by way of explanation that Eve uh, was deceived, but Adam sinned deliberately. And so in that transgression, in that fall, the word transgression, whenever you see it in scripture, and if you read the, the book of Psalms, especially Psalm 119, you'll see it over and over and over. To transgress literally means to cross a line. So probably the most, uh, to me, two famous uh, illustrations for this are you walk by and you see the sign on the park bench that says wet paint. What do you do? You walk over and touch it. Why? Because you want to see if the paint really is wet. Or worse, you see the line that, you know, on somebody's property, you know, you're driving out in the country and it says, no trespassing. And you're like, but there's a beautiful oasis over there I'd kind of like to go to it so you transgress you cross the line and you go somewhere you're not supposed to go and Adam and Eve crossed the line they transgressed and so this transgression is what caused the fall of mankind it's what introduced sin into the world and it's what caused David to say you know in sin I was conceived so you're like even little babies are sinful yes unfortunately that's true because sin has marked the world In Isaiah 53, it says this with respect to finishing the transgression. What does that mean? What does God mean when he says, I'm going to put in the end, I'm going to finish the transgression? Isaiah 53, 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Speaking of who? The Messiah, Jesus. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin... He shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. What brings an end to the transgression? It's the crucifixion, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So this Prophecy is already pointing toward the cross. So to finish the transgression, you think where Daniel is in time, he's probably like roughly 539 BC or so. The Lord's declared 77 is 490 years. You do the math on that, you haven't even made it to zero you know, BC AD yet. And he's saying we're going to finish the transgressions. And we now know, looking back, we have that advantage that he's talking about the cross. So what does all this mean? When he says he's going to finish this transgression, it's to restrain firmly or completely. The transgression is the rebellion of man against the word of God. And so the Lord is saying here, 
I'm going to finish it. Meaning I'm going to put it to rest, I'm going to put it to bed. Now when we come to the New Testament, we know very clearly, don't we, that when Jesus died on the cross for our sin, that it was forgiven, period, past tense, with continuing effects into the future. When I come to the cross, when I come to Christ, however you want to say this, when I believe and receive, and when the blood of Christ is applied to my life, and when I've humbled myself and repented and come to him and said, Lord, I need you. Lord, please save me. Please forgive me. When that happens through the blood of Christ on the cross, our transgression is forgiven. It's sealed up. It's under the blood. It's done for. And so as he looks into the future and he talks about this transgression being finished, you know, we're sitting on the other side of it looking back. Daniel was looking forward into something he couldn't see, just knowing that God was saying Some, someday this is going to happen, the transgression is going to be taken care of. And then he said, I'm going to make an end of sins, plural. And to make an end means to seal up, to shut into a prison, to be secured, to be locked up. And I believe when he's talking about sins here, he's talking about the daily sins, the sins that we do just on a regular basis. One person said, taking these words at face value, this means not only the end of the guilt of sin, but an end of sin itself. It means to seal up or to restrain sins. This now looks forward to a new redeemed world. There's a spiritual sense in which Jesus, through his death on the cross, has taken care of our sins, but we know from also the New Testament, Romans chapter 7 and others, that we do continue to sin, unfortunately. So this is referring, I think, to the fact that we are under the blood of Christ and that our sins are taken away. But the practical side of sin, we're told in Romans 8, somewhere down around verse 18, that says, one day the unredeemed mortality will be redeemed. So we've been redeemed spiritually, but our flesh has not yet been redeemed. It will be redeemed in the presence of God on the other side when we get our resurrection body. So I believe this is referring to the time when we are on the other side, when we are in the presence of Jesus. When you see in scripture the word sin, usually in the singular, it's talking about the principle of sin. And when you see the word sins, plural, it's usually speaking of the daily sins that we experience or that we commit. A couple of verses to help us sort of tie this together. When you read in the book of Revelation chapter 1, the introduction to the person of Jesus, it says in Revelation 1.5, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Again, something God did. Revelation 5, 9, and they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation proving that the salvation that Jesus Christ worked on the cross was for everyone, not just for the Jew, not just for the Gentile, but for every person, every tribe, every tongue, every nation. In Romans 11, it says this, 
Verse 26, and so all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Well, the next thing it says here in this verse is to make a reconciliation for iniquity. The word iniquity almost always refers to a type of sin called evil. So transgression is crossing the line. Iniquity is just evil. You know, like it's, it's, it's when you've been in an argument or a fight and it's over. The other person's asked for forgiveness, but when you walk by, you just have the urge to reach out and grab a little flesh and pinch and twist. That's evil. I see a few people laughing. I know I'm not alone in that, you know. Might have done that once or twice to my kids. I'm sorry. But iniquity, evil. Like what I mentioned earlier about this thing with the satanic ritual a few weeks ago. That's, that's iniquity. That's evil. To make reconciliation for iniquity. So th- this is the pervasiveness of the, the blood of Christ. He takes care of not just sin, but every kind of sin, every type Every way people can think of and conceive to sin, he's covered it. It's under the blood. So to make reconciliation, the word reconcile means to be able to be turned to face God again. But you see, it's not us that if, I mean, we've turned away from God, but as you read the scriptures, it seems to indicate that God had to turn his face away from us because of our sin. When you read in 2 Corinthians about the ministry of reconciliation, it seems to indicate there that the ministry of reconciliation is telling other people that God has now turned back to us so that we can be turned to him. He's turned his face to us so that we can approach him. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, again, verse 6, it says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He goes on to say, To bring in everlasting righteousness. This is the first of the three positives. To bring in everlasting righteousness means a few things. It means to bring in an age of righteousness. And we believe this will be uh, beginning with the Messianic kingdom, the millennium after the time of the tribulation. So there's a time and space where God will bring in everlasting righteousness, but also there's a spiritual side to this. That when we come to Christ because of his death, burial, and resurrection, that we now have been robed in his righteousness. The righteousness of Jesus Jesus becomes my righteousness, becomes your righteousness. And so like everything, we, we are saved, we are redeemed, but there's an age of righteousness coming where we will no longer be just redeemed beings living in unredeemed flesh in an unredeemed world, but the time will come when we'll be, we will be redeemed beings living in a righteous age, in a righteous kingdom with a righteous king. So to bring in everlasting righteousness. Jeremiah 23. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. Who is that talking about except Jesus himself? Revelation Excuse me, considering in Jer- continuing in Jeremiah 23, 
The next verse, verse six, in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name, which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. So even by his name. And then Revelation 19, verse 11. Now I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Jesus ushering in a time of righteousness. And then finally, to seal up vision and prophecy. So this is a time when God says for this kind of prophecy, this stuff looking into the future, looking at the time of the end, it would be sealed up. There would be no more. And remember when Jesus came, and now a great tutorial, a great parallel passage on this is to read Matthew chapters 24 and 25 as it talks about very similar things and you know reading those two passages can at times be a a little confusing trying to sort them out we taught Matthew uh, last year so you can always go back and dial those messages up but in this sealing up vision and prophecy Jesus himself was the one who later brought clarity to that vision and prophecy things that would happen in the future but then of course The Holy Spirit laid it on the Apostle John's heart as he authored the book of Revelation to lay it all out there, saying this is how it's going to be. So from Daniel's point of view, from an Old Testament point of view, sealing up vision and prophecy. The vision, oral prophecies like the Old Testament prophets, like Elijah, like Elisha. Certainly David was considered a prophet. Moses was considered a prophet. So these 77s, these 70 years of weeks that was coming, all these things are going to take place within that period of time. And then he says at the very end of verse 24, and to anoint the most holy. The implication there in the original language is that the most holy place. And where is that? There's only one place. And it's inside the temple inside the inner part in the most holy place, the holy of holies. And we believe that this is referring to the fact that when God again one day establishes the temple, the third temple, and there will finally, God will come in and take up his rule and his reign again. But there's something that has to happen first to desecrate that holy place to trigger God's wrath. And we'll talk about that in a moment. Verse 25 as he continues this amazing revelation he's giving to Daniel. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, until Jesus comes, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks, which is 69 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. Now remember where Daniel is and what's happening at this time. He's still in captivity. The 70 years of captivity are almost up. And we know that the different kings are about to start sending people back to Jerusalem. The the return from exile hasn't happened yet, but it's about to start happening. And so we know that uh, the book of Ezra is the, the first group of people. There are three waves of refugees that are sent in the book of Ezra to go back to Jerusalem. And their main mission over the period of years that they are sent back and and building is to clean up the rubble and to rebuild the temple. So they're doing that. And then comes Nehemiah on the heels of Ezra. 
And Nehemiah's mission is to go back, now that the temple's been built and that temple worship, the worship of God has been restored, and notice that their priority was not in fixing their homes and rebuilding their homes. Their priority was to first build the temple. And then after that, and only after that, this is amazing, you should go back and read it in Ezra and Nehemiah. After the temple was rebuilt, then they were free to go and build their houses. After the the house of God, the temple of God, the worship of God was built and it became the central focus once again for Israel, then they could go build their houses. And then Nehemiah goes back and he now orchestrates and brings people with him to build the wall, to to build the security for the city. And during that time, the, the street here, as it says, shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. Go read the book of Nehemiah. What do you find? Nehemiah had nothing but opposition. He had people like Sanballat and Tobiah coming, uh, you know, yelling at him and, you know, trying to discourage the people. And it got so bad that they had to to work with a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other. So these are all things that would be fulfilled by this prophecy. But this, uh, from the going forth of the command to restore and build uh, Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince shall be 69 weeks. So we know that if you just do the math, seven times 69 is 483 years. So this prophecy is divided into seven weeks, uh, the 49 years, 62 weeks, 69 is 62 plus seven, of course, That equals 483 years. So God had something he wanted to do during that first portion of weeks. That's to restore and rebuild Jerusalem and all of that. And then after that 69-week period of time, or 483 years, uh, that's how long it would be from then until the Messiah, the Prince. Now you look at this and you say, is he just saying 483 years? And it could be anywhere within that 483rd year and whatnot. Uh, No, there was a very specific aspect to this. If you take the the 69 weeks or the 483 years, and of course, they were in Babylon and they used a 360-day calendar. You just do the math. It comes out to 173,880 days. So it says that this period of time from the point when this command is given, these things would happen. So when did this happen? If you go back to Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 8, you'll see there that that is when King Artaxerxes gave the command to Nehemiah to go back to restore and to rebuild the wall. There were other commands that were given to do other things, to serve other purposes. But on that date, in March 14th, 445 BC, on that very day, that's the day that Nehemiah was given that command. So if we take this prophecy and we apply it and say from that time of that command, March 14, 445 BC, and you count forward 173,880 days, you come to the time of April 16, 32 AD. Now, what happened on that day? Anything significant at all? It just so happens by coincidence to be the day of the third year of Jesus' ministry on the day we call Palm Sunday 
when Jesus himself went and got the donkey, or they told him to get, he told his disciples to get the donkey, and then they threw their cloaks on it, and he rode that donkey down the side of Mount Olivet, squirreling around, coming around the bend, seeing the city of Jerusalem, seeing the temple. And you remember what happened that day as Jesus rode down the, the mountain? The people were throwing down palm branches and they were crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were shouting out a halal psalm, Psalm 118. They were crying out, Messiah, Messiah, Hosanna. This is the prophecy that God is giving Daniel. And here's the amazing thing. It's so exact. This points to God's sovereignty. This points to God's Uh, knowledge of everything. He's omniscient. This points to God's power. He's all-knowing. You know, I can't make things happen on my calendar. I've got things on my calendar all the time. I'm sure you do too. And I'm like, on Tuesday at 10 o'clock, here's what I'm going to be and what I'm going to be doing. may be true, but, you know, I may be derailed. I may be diverted. On the way to work, I may get into an accident. I could have a health issue. Something could happen that, that, an emergency that calls my attention away. But God can call these things and they're going to happen. Regardless of what happens, they're going to happen. And so God has laid this thing out with such incredible detail. So the clock started on that day, March 14, 445 BC, for this prophecy to be fulfilled. And again, we're looking back. And notice in verse 26, and after the 62 weeks... So remember he said the seven weeks, then the 62 weeks. So the the 62 weeks, the second period of time. So after the 69 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. What is he talking about? He's talking about the death of Jesus. The The biblical term cut off is sometimes used to describe execution. But it's talking about here that he would be cut off and have nothing for himself. You see, Jesus, when he died, he didn't die for himself. He died for others. He didn't die because he was guilty. He wasn't serving a capital offense because of his crimes. He was serving a capital offense because of our crimes. Again, Isaiah 53, he was taken from prison. Isaiah 53, 8, he was taken from prison and from judgment And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living, that for the transgressions of my people he was stricken. So you can see how this all rolls together, right? Isaiah 53 is a key to understanding how all this was going to be fulfilled, what it would look like. And Isaiah 53 says that this Messiah, this suffering servant, would be the person who would fulfill this Daniel prophecy. And the people of the prince who is to come, notice the word prince is in lowercase. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. So this was a near end part of the prophecy. The people of the prince who is to come who shall destroy the city, I believe, is referring to that period in AD 70 at the end of, you know, Jesus had already been dead and ascended, you know, more than 30 years at that point. Titus Vespasian came in with a vengeance and he destroyed the city of Jerusalem 
And remember Jesus said in his prophecy, he says, I tell you, people will come into this city and not one stone will be left upon another. This temple will be torn down stone by stone. And that's exactly what happened when Titus Vespasian came in and invaded this city. And notice there it says, uh, the end of it shall be with a flood. There's the literal flood in Genesis, but uh, very often in the Bible, the word flood is used to refer to a military invasion. And so the end of it shall be with a flood. And he says, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. You see, all that took place <coughs> when Titus Vespasian came in. And he, he took the city by rage. And it says, until the end of the war, desolations are determined. He says, then he, verse 27, then he shall confirm a covenant. Who? This prince, this person who would come in. So we know that the people who came in and destroyed the city were the Romans, right? Now he's looking forward and he says, now he, this prince, he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. So he's referring here to that the Antichrist would come and broker a covenant, a peace deal, a treaty, whatever it is, with many, with the Jewish nation for one week, for one seven-year period of time. But in the middle of the week, halfway through seven is three and a half, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. So this says that the, the third temple will be rebuilt and there will be once again temple worship restored. Now, the temple, the third temple has not yet been rebuilt. There's still dispute over where it should be put. And you can go read all this online. There's a place called the Temple Mount Institute. And it's got loads of information about this. It's going on right now. They're making all the preparations, getting ready for when this happens. And I believe they're being driven by the Spirit of God to do this. These are, these are Jews who are doing this making these preparations. But anyways, he will go in and make an end to sacrifice and offering halfway through. Now, what is he talking about? Jesus said in Matthew 24 that uh, when you see the abomination of desolation as foretold by Daniel the prophet. So even Jesus recognized this prophecy. What will happen is we know the Antichrist, the prince, will walk in to the temple, declare himself to be God, throw the curtains back, walk into the most holy place, the holy of holies, and in a very profane way, he will declare himself to be God and demand that the world worship him. Not just the Jews, not just Jerusalem, but the world. And so he will bring an end to sacrifice and offering. So the sacrifices and the offerings, the daily things that are done there in the temple and the day of Yom Kippur and all of that would be, which will have been restarted and been in action and moving for three and a half years. Now all of a sudden he will walk in, this man who declared himself to be their friend, to be their deliverer. He will walk in and declare himself to be God and demand to be worshiped. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate. The person who walks in there, the Antichrist, is the one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. 
So in that second three and a half years, as we, and that's why we're going to Revelation next to put all of this into context. In that last three and a half years, God will pour out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting, unbelieving world such as we have never seen. The first three and a half years will seem like a picnic, a walk in the park compared to the last three and a half years. And so when this Antichrist comes, this prince of the people who would come, which seems to imply that he would be of Roman or perhaps of Italian descent. So it seems to be pretty specific. And it makes sense because I don't think the Jews would ever accept an Islamic antichrist. So it has to be someone that they can accept that they are willing to do business with. And the scriptures here, I believe, indicate that it will be someone who will be of Roman or Italian descent. And so he will come in, he will strike this covenant. They will embrace him as a political messiah. It's interesting, Jesus said, just speaking prophetically about this, although you may not have seen it that way, in John 5, 43, Jesus says, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. Now, that's not just a general statement of people coming. I think he's talking about the Antichrist. Now, we know that this Antichrist, this prince who would come, He's given a lot of different names. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 8, he's spoken of as the little horn. We talked about this a little bit, but the little horn of Daniel is referring to this man who would be the Antichrist. Here in Daniel 9, he's called the prince who is to come, or the one who also who makes desolate. Fast forwarding to the New Testament in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, <clears throat> Paul calls this Antichrist the son of perdition. Also in that same passage in 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul calls this man the lawless one. John in Revelation 11 verse 7 calls him the beast. And John in his epistles, 1 John and 2 John, calls him the Antichrist. Now I've got a number of scriptures here, but for the sake of time I'm going to have to skip over them this morning. But I will read one of them to you. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day, what day, uh, will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. You see, that's where we get it from, that he goes in and declares himself to be God in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Then a little bit further in that same passage, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. So this Antichrist will be a very powerful man with the ability and power of Satan to work signs and miracles and to cause people to believe in him. But in the middle of this week, this Antichrist, when he goes in, he'll bring an end to the sacrifice and the offerings and he will create this abomination when he goes in. And so Daniel, as he has all of this put out in front of him, you know, he comes to the end of it and he says, what is all of this? Now, as we get in next week into chapter 10, 
you know, God will zoom back out and focus once again on the Medo-Persian Empire and the, the Greece uh, Empire and all of that. But God keeps sort of zooming in and out and giving Daniel these, uh, these understandings of what's going to happen in your immediate future, but also what's going to happen way down in the annals of time. And it's interesting that Gabriel did not tell Daniel what would happen between the 69th and the 70th week, because remember, we're up to the 69th week, but what is that 70th week? And there seems to have been a gap, right, between that 69th and that 70th week. Everything we read says the 69th week was Jesus coming the first time. The 70th week as we now know through the book of Revelation and the writings of the New Testament, is the beginning of the time of the tribulation. And we are told very specifically the time of the tribulation is a seven-year period of time. And the details of that time are given to us in the book of Revelation. You see, this prophecy, as we mentioned at the beginning, has to do with the Jews, the Jewish temple, and the city of Jerusalem. In fact, in light of what we've talked about today, if you would, for extra credit, so to speak, go back and read Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. Because as you're reading there in the book of Romans, this glorious book that God gave the Apostle Paul, you read Romans 1 through um, 8, and it's just amazing all the things that God gives to us. And all of a sudden in Romans 9, he takes this parenthesis And for three chapters, he deals with the nation of Israel. And he says, God is not done with his people yet. They may have been set aside because remember when Jesus came and the Jews would not accept him as their Messiah. And then the the apostles are anointed by the Holy Spirit and they go out and they preach. And they ultimately are sent from Jerusalem out to preach in the world. Yes, there was a church at Jerusalem. There were Messianic Jews. But by and large, the times of the Gentiles, as the Bible calls it in, in that passage, Romans 9, 10, and 11, is a time when God sends the gospel now of Jesus Christ around the world. And during this time, God himself reveals himself to every tribe, tongue, and nation. But the time will come on God's prophetic clock when the, the, the minute hand or the, the second hand will strike 12. And something will happen in Israel. And this will be kicked off. And this Antichrist will come and he will make this peace in the Middle East treaty. He will make a a peace treaty specifically with Israel. And that will kick off this seven-year period of time. So so Gabriel didn't tell Daniel how all that was going to be worked out. It was going to be muddy. but, But we now, where we sit, we look back and we say, we know that. We know what's going to happen. This is a mystery that God has revealed. He kept hidden in ages past, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 3, but now he has revealed it to us. So what does all this mean to us? What does this whole prophecy thing mean to us? Well, there is just interesting coincidence, right? That all this stuff with the revival that we were talking about that seems to be happening is going on. And, and I believe, this is a personal thing based on my understanding of Scripture, that in the time leading up to when the rapture of the church will happen, second, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, when he will come back and, and take his people home to be with him, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up with him and go to be with the Lord, and so shall we ever be in his presence. That that rapture of the church 
And again, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 also hints at this, that when, when he who now restrains sin, meaning I believe the Holy Spirit is taken out of the way, then the ushering in of the time of the Antichrist will come. I believe before Jesus comes to rapture his church and to take us home to be with him, that there will be one last push, one last revival, one last awakening, one last global people going out and preaching the gospel. And it's interesting, as this, this time has been developing for us, Pastor Mitch and I were talking about this yesterday, we have this outreach coming up. And how this whole thing came about was just simply the hand of God. This was not something we dreamed up. It just, it came to us. I believe this is somehow part of the whole thing. So what does all this mean to us? It means we know what's going to happen next. The rapture is coming next, and then the time of the tribulation ushered in through the Antichrist. And I believe that we will not be here. We will not see it. We will be watching it from heaven. But... That's simply the mercy, the grace, and the love of God. So our job is to be in love with God first and foremost. Our job is to be filled with his Holy Spirit. Our job is to seek his face. Our job is to let him change us and mold us and make us. Just like all those passages in the Old Old Testament and Jeremiah and Isaiah that talk about he is the potter, we are the clay. And he molds us, he shapes us. So we want him to do that in our lives so that these things will happen, so that these things will come true. Peter has this strange reference, and we'll end with this, where he says, you know, hastening the day of the Lord. In other words, this is something we should want to happen. How do we hasten the day of the Lord? By living living godly and righteously now, by getting right with Jesus and walking with him, by allowing him to fill us and, and then speak on his behalf. That's how we can hasten the day of the Lord. What does this 70 weeks prophecy mean to us? Everything. Because it's coming, it's going to happen. And we have to get ready. Paul wrote in Romans 13. And do this knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand, therefore let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light, let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in licentiousness and lewdness, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. That's where we are. That's what we need to do. Lord, we love you. We bless you this morning. Thank you for being here with us. And Lord, as we come to this time of partaking communion, we pray that you would just minister to us, Lord. Help us to remember who you are and help us to remember our salvation, Lord, not to take it for granted, to think of it properly, to understand, God, that you, you are God. You're in control of everything. You're sovereign. And so, Lord, we bend the knee this morning. We humbly submit to you. And we ask you to do a work in our lives that, that today, if need be, Lord, this is the beginning of a new day, of a new era in our lives. 
And that from this day forward, that we'll walk with you, God, and listen to you and obey you. Lord, please help us. And as that man said, and we talked about this morning so far, be merciful to me, a sinner. Help me, Lord, to be filled with your spirit, to pick up my cross daily and carry it, and to be your servant. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.